Welcome to Listener's Advisory, the San Diego Public Library podcast. Just can't get enough deep conversation about the direction of the library business? On today's episode, we'll hear part two of two of Trevor's discussion with American Library Association President-elect Emily Drabinsky. So stick around. This should be fun. Okay, so here's kind of a long one, uh, just to keep going off that theme. Uh, so I, I've heard this phrase before that I really love reusing. Libraries are at the heart of communities, and communities are at the heart of libraries. But what mechanisms or dynamics do you see that can kind of re-socialize libraries back into communities? So my example is friends groups. You know, not every library system, public library system, has a friends group, but they're basically the folks who do the fundraising. Mm-hmm. Friends groups often attract wealthy folks who are looking to expand their spheres of influence and ensure that neighborhoods involve in ways that are favorable to their interests. So either these are, you know, these are property owners, they're not folks that are, say, members of tenant unions. Um, right. And, and that's, that's just being objective. So a stronger friends group or like for a task for a library worker would be looking at a friends group that would better reflect the demographics in the community and offer its members opportunities to be directly involved in the community-centered decision-making. So we talk about organizing library workers on mm-hmm. internally, but aren't there opportunities also for library workers to kind of be outward-facing? and and Absolutely. When I think about the value of a union in a workplace, that I want to organize a union in my workplace, and I think we can think about that both as the entity that can fight for fair wages and working conditions and a say in our in how our workplace is run, right? That's what the union is for. But you can also use the organizing that you do in that space to think about other projects that we want to do together. So if I'm, like for example, we were talking before we started recording about the Supreme Court de- decision around Roe v. Wade. So while that may not be a workplace issue, it is a it is a hot an issue that makes me very angry you know, and these incursions on our rights. And I can draw a line between that and my workplace, right? Like I want healthcare coverage for abortion, regardless of the Supreme Court decision. So that could be something I could organize for. But also like there are people who need abortions in my workplace and we want to do a walkout or a, you know, whatever our campaign action would be. If you're organized, you can be mobilized on behalf of those kinds of issues. If you and I have already worked together to sort of, fight for a a wage increase. And we've done that through a coordinated campaign. We've been wearing buttons together. You and I have gathered a bunch of signatures on a petition. I know you through that work. We are connected through that work. We have built a political analysis together by doing that work together. Now we can be mobilized to do other things, right? If we want to. Because that's the other thing. It's like, it's not as if I have all the answers or anybody has all the answers or you could read a book that would give you the right answer. Like we never know what the action we take is going to be that's going to get us the win. You know, my politics are definitely informed by Marxist ways of understanding the world. And one of the things that Marx says is that we change the world and thereby change ourselves. So it's not that I have to come to the right right position or I have to believe the right thing, but I have to do something in the world that makes it different. And by doing that, I will become different myself. I think less about like, well, let's sit down and strategize about how to get a better friends group and more like, oh, there's this, you know, I don't, I don't know what the issue would be, but there's this after school set of kids that is really being loud and 
enough and we want to do something about that and then like let's figure out what we could do together that would change that so it's like it's not that different from library work like you're always trying to solve community problems together but now i you know i'm thinking like getting a social justice oriented friends group could be like a really fun campaign to organize i mean it's kind of a there's self-selecting behavior Mm -hmm. with the type of folks that are showing up at your library when you're doing one type of programming and then if you're doing another type, I mean, that's going to be another self-selecting group. And like, I've never thought about being a part of a library friends group or part of a library board. It's like never even occurred to me. Oh, you should. But the other side is really thinking about it a lot, right? They're flooding the board with people who agree with them. So we need to be organized to do something similar, I think. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Just food for thought for everyone out there. And so you mentioned he who cannot be named. No, I'm kidding. The Mark. N-word. Yes. yes. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't mind saying, well, what should I say? Marxism, let's go to materialism. Yeah. And yes. sometimes I guess I'm willing to talk all day about fights over fights over representation are important. And that's very real. I'm never I'm not going to denigrate that. At the same time, sometimes in, in library land, I look at what are more just kind of like idealistic struggles to either own certain spheres of like, you know, awareness and consciousness. But mm-hmm. something that I noticed during the pandemic, we started seeing public libraries in America really begin direct distribution of material mm-hmm. goods. And yes. this this trend totally fascinated me because this was interventions of not only, you know, partnerships and networking with food pantries, but library workers passing out masks, COVID tests, sometimes assisting with like the application of tests themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, laptops and Wi-Fi hotspots are particularly like that has gone gangbusters here with mm-hmm. the public library. It's been a great program where folks can get a Wi-Fi hotspot, take it home. Now you have internet access. It's amazing. At home. Yeah. So I just see this trend moving forward that that's kind of like a materialist intervention mm-hmm. in people's lives. Do you want to talk about that at all or anything you want to mention? Yeah. There? Yeah. I just think about like the, well, this is another case where a lot of people are really excited about those changes in libraries. A lot of people are like, that's overreach and overstep and I've got enough to do handing out a book. And, you know, so there's like a, a range of responses to that. So I have like a couple of thoughts first that libraries are, you know, circulating machines. Like we know how to circulate stuff. Like we tag it and send it out and then it comes back and we send it out again. And that's like what we do for a living. And it's what we've done for a hundred years. And so we're very good at that. And you think about what other systems work like that in the United States. It's the, it's the library and it's the post office and that's it. We don't have any other like great ways of distributing goods. Well, schools, right? Like, so public schools in New York city, they passed out food, you know, that was like the food distribution point for us during the early part of the pandemic. Yes. But you have to reinvest in other systems, right? So like you don't want the library to be so like the only node of distribution of of social goods because that's too much. Like we can't send, we can't pass out everything. And, you know, I haven't been in a public library for a while, but when I was and it was tax time and the tax forms came in, like all bets were off. You didn't do anything but distribute tax forms and answer questions about tax forms and troubleshoot tax forms. And so that's like, we need other entities, other institutions that can do the kind of circulatory materialist work that you're talking about. So libraries can do those things too. But if we're going to be asked to do those things, we have to be resourced in a way that recognizes that the crucial role we play in all of those systems, I think. Yeah, it's almost as if uh, I've always hear in this field like, oh, well, we wear many hats. And that's mm-hmm. kind of always like the... the um 
well, management talk for like, uh, you're doing a thousand different things that maybe don't even intersect that well, but we need you to do them. And it's fine. You know, we see staff uh, bear down and and put their head down and and get it done. And oh, I mean, I think, yeah, library workers kept a lot of communities alive during that time. Yeah, but it'd be churlish to say it doesn't take its toll on the workforce. Uh, and uh, burnout is a huge topic in library land. Um, oh, yeah. As is across like the wider society now. Uh, so, yeah, maybe as that pressure builds, that libraries are that sole focal point of distribution, either politically or logistically, the wider community will have to recognize, you know, we need more than just libraries to like be doing this kind of stuff, uh, et cetera. So that has- Yeah, I mean, we could have robust food circulation systems that were easy and transparent and universal and not means tested and constant. And there probably are those systems, right? But like, they need to be more public. They need to be for everybody. Cause I do think like the only way to keep things like things like the library going or to make sure that everybody uses them. Because if you use a library, you know, it's valuable. Yeah. So you got to make sure everybody's using it. And it's not just sort of a handful. It's not like children and old people, you know, but that it's everybody. Yeah. No, I tell my staff all the time. I was like, you guys, like if as many people that have a stake in the public library actually showed up here and wanted service, we would all be overwhelmed oh, like, yeah. to the, you know, so, totally. um, but we want to, we want to get to that point because then we can mm-hmm. keep going. So let, let's pivot. We talked about, you know, kind of economics and material things. In in some of your campaign, you talked about the Green New Deal for libraries. And mm-hmm. my secondary to that is uh, sometimes I just don't know if public libraries, because we get beholden to this both sides-ism um, mm-hmm. sometimes. That sometimes is a little too, I think people readily run to that sometimes because it's a way to like duck out of confrontation or like scary mm-hmm. community conversations. I mean, it just is. Uh, yeah. But uh, climate change is not a partisan issue. It's real. It's science. Are, are public libraries doing enough to confront it? And, and what, what's missing from, from the grander thing? You want to touch on that? Sure. So like, I actually think ALA, the ALA is doing a lot of great work in this area. There's a sustainability roundtable. There's a sustainability committee of council. There's a sustainability has been added as a core value. So like there's, there's lots of the, the sort of infrastructure by which I mean the like clear written out commitments and the bylaws that we can now push to make sure that we're moving in uh, sort of that we're making those ideals actionable and, and meaningful. Rebecca Smith Aldrich does amazing work in New York state libraries, uh, has developed a sort of triple bottom line rubric that you can go through and get certified. So I think there's good work happening. When I when I talk about the Green New Deal, that's an explicit reference to sort of those efforts in Washington to put public money towards rehabilitating, changing, altering public institutions such that they can be environmentally sustainable, producing the, the sort of jobs that would be necessary to do that. And so we have to decide like how committed are we going to be to our values? And if we're as committed as I think we need to be, and as I think we fundamentally are to the survival of our communities. And like we were just talking about, we saw it all through COVID, like in a lot of places, library workers kept people fed, right? That we have to also be actively working to, to make the environment 
safe. And, you know, it's like we have to deal with flooding and, and so many libraries are, you know, facing fire damage and wind. And it's like, we're all subject to the impacts of climate change and we need to be as, as active and working to reverse it as we can. But I think, again, it's like, you know, what could I do as ALA president? I think trying to make sure that we have that language in everybody's sort of conversation, yeah. how they talk about and think about what they're going to do. That'll be my, my first plan, I guess. Talk about it a lot. It's really that opportunity again, like we kind of said, uh, the, the librarian or, or the library worker in a neighborhood is the person that has that, they not only have the historical consciousness that goes back, but looking forward to like, don't just think about next year. You know, I'm not thinking about next quarter's profits. I'm thinking about two decades from now, three decades from now, like what are the summertime temperatures going to be like in some parts of the US? We, we need more people like that to be heard. And I guess it, it does kind of, I, I feel like we're at a moment in history where uh, the library workers, one of those mm-hmm. few vocations left that it's like, Hey, it's on you to, to be kind of like the Cassandra, if no one else is going to listen to the scientists. It's interesting. Like another sort of facet of neoliberalism is the sort of, I see is the sort of gutting of public institutions to the degree that they're no longer usable. You're more easily able to abandon them. Right. And so support for institutions, I see as like an important counterweight to that. Like we have to look at the public institutions that no matter how problematic or difficult or historically, you know, rooted in racism as they as every American institution is, that we have to decide whether these are institutions that we're going to put our, our energy into. So like I can imagine somebody saying, well, like libraries are environmentally damaging because we buy a lot of books and then throw them away (laughs) you know like you could make an argument that like we're not we're not necessary anymore and we're useless and with everything online it's really an environmental sink to have the library there you know so we've got to be totally right plowing our our energy i think into making sure that our institutions are seen as engines of public good which they are and then we have like to connect that to broader political movements where we remind people that public goods are good things, that we want them, that we benefit from them, that all of us do. And despite the attacks on, on, you know, the decades long attacks on all of them that have rendered them sort of non-functional, you know, everything from the voting boxes in New York, where you're like, wow, this thing is from <laughs> the 1940s. I don't know if you remember voting in New York, you know, mm-hmm. like, is this how democracy works? But, you know, we've got to, we've got to, um, yeah, I think now is the time to really support the institutions that have the capacity to do good. And I see the library as one of those. You know, I love that. Um, it makes me think of like when I'm on the floor and uh, here at my library and I see, I see we have a lot of families. I see folks browsing the stacks or we have a program that day and there's just lots of people in the building and they're diverse, they're all ages. And it's like, you know, the public library is a place in America where you're reminded, stop being so damn cynical. And maybe it's, Starts here with the public library, I think. I'm not just trying to wax the circle. That just came to my mind as you were talking. Like, yeah. you know, it's just this fight against cynical opportunism that's like, oh yeah, well, they just recycle a bunch of books and we they take up a bunch of power. We don't need libraries, you know. If we're, we hear it all the time, mm-hmm. we're like, hey, there's a crazy new app that lets you share books. Oh, you mean the library? You know, this kind of I digress. Yeah. Which is why I'm really thinking a lot about libraries as space right now, because like every inch of the public library is an inch of the city that belongs to the public right every square foot is a square foot that's not an ant that we've chosen to make it not an amazon warehouse but instead a place where a family can come and pick up books 
right? Or do whatever they're going to do in the library. And so if we're thinking about it as like a struggle for public space, struggle for the right to the city, like I live in New York, if you have to go to the bathroom, it's your public library or you're on the street. And should we have more public restrooms? Absolutely. But we should also just expand our public libraries so that more of the city belongs to more of us. Yeah. When you're at the public library, you don't have to shop and you don't have to work. There's no space like that. Yes. None. Public park, maybe. You have to obey the rules of conduct, but Mm -hmm. you know, you don't have to shop. Yeah. Rules of conduct. That's another episode. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Well, speaking of cynicism and, you know, we'll start wrapping up here, but I had Mm -hmm. to touch on, you know, this year's banned books week and really it should be banned books month, right? Let's just, can we skip Mm -hmm the week Mm -hmm. and it should be a whole month, I think. But this Banned Books Week this year is going to be huge. Uh, Folks may not know, you're from Idaho. That's right. I know Idaho has been a, uh, what do you call it? Like a hotspot for recent issues, censorship and and just, yeah, I say cynicism because a lot of these efforts are astroturfed. I can say that, right? I've done my research. They are, that's not an opinion. Mm -hmm. Let, Let me turn it over to you. Like, what should library workers and library supporters know about so much of the, the censorship things going on right now in America? I think exactly what you just said, like people need to know it's organized, that these are not one mad, angry mom at the school, but these are, uh, you know, in Idaho, the one of the state legislators held a workshop on how to target books at your school or public library because they're offensive, right? Like they're training people in how to do this. And you know, as much as it's about the books, I think it's about other things too. It's about control. It's about not wanting to tolerate difference, white backlash against some of the social progress we've seen over the past few years. And we've got to understand them as organized and we have to be as organized as they are on the other side. And I think that's, that's, what's crucial. And I know that you mentioned before, you know, there's not a big library agenda, but if there is one, it said it's to support the First Amendment and the right to read. What can we talk about your vision for ALA and and where where you land with advocacy, organizing, and all these things, just to like tie it all together? Sure. So like, you know, the issues that we have in the library are local. They're always going to be local. There's my local community and what they need. um, And they're the local problems that I'm facing. I think ALA is a big organization that can provide a lot of support and does provide a lot of support already. I've had good friends who've had to call the Office of Intellectual Freedom over the past year due to shenanigans around materials related to gender and sexuality in their collections. And so it's, it's an organization that does a lot of work around the right to read. I do think there's a distance between between the sort of toolkits that were given and then standing up against some of these incursions. Like it is very scary to be on the receiving end of one of these attacks, right? It's not easy and we can't do it by ourselves and we can't do it because we have access to good information. Like we have to be together. We have to understand how to, how to stand up. We have to know that we have solidarity across the sector. So my real vision is to use the sort of organizing energy I I have from unions and bring that into the association and sort of, you know, their skills and techniques to organizing. It's like, you don't know them until you learn them. And I had to learn them. I happened to learn them in the union movement. I think you can learn them in all kinds of ways, uh, but all of us need to know how to have organizing conversations with one another. We need to 
know how to turn our complaints into demands. We know, need to know how to maintain lists of uh, stakeholders. We need to know how to assess those lists and move people. We need to know how to design campaigns that begin with asking you to meet me after work for a beer to talk about what's happening at the office and end with sitting in the boss's office until the library is fully funded. And so you can't ask people who have no practice in standing up against power to do that on their own. You know, and we have those, we have to have the tools to be able to do that with and for each other. And that's the sort of work I'm going to try to do while I'm inside the association with full acknowledgement that the association will have plans for me that may not align with that. But we all have to know how to fight the fights that we have to fight locally to survive. And I can't think of a more important thing to be doing right now. That's going to do it for today's episode. Once again, thanks to our guest, Emily Drabinsky. As usual, thanks to Pete Niesner and Luke Henshaw for contributing original music, and a giant thanks to Robin Gage Norquist. Robin is behind her own massive effort to hire new, entry-level staff for SDPL's imminent and full reopening. For more information on the topics discussed in today's episode, please visit us at sandiego.gov forward slash SDPL podcast. This podcast is supported by the Library Foundation SD. For more information on the good work they do, visit libraryfoundationsd.org. If you like what we're doing here at Listener's Advisory, please consider sharing our podcast on your social media, leave us a rating or review via your favorite podcast directory, or tell someone you know about us. Thanks in advance.